So I was at a pastor gathering a few months ago in Memphis, and there was a small group of folks, and the uh, speaker looked at us and said, um, like, what passage of Scripture do you go to? That What passage of Scripture keeps you going? Like, do you have a text that just really kind of keeps you going? Like, what is it, what story or text has God used in a special way in your life that picks you back up when you fail or that recharges you for service and mission when you've gotten kind of apathetic or that turns you back on to God and His glory when you've grown cold? Do you have a kind of a go-to text or series of verses or story that like inhabits your mind or that instills comfort or, or strength, maybe conviction, joy or awe, or just this melts your heart. Um, I mean, surely we have a number of them, and we ought to, different seasons of life, and surely we need the whole Bible. You know, you need it all. You're, you need the full diet of God's Word, and yet there's a, a, there's a way in which God works. And you know, sanctification tends to be this joining in certain moments where God joins our experience, something good or something very difficult. And the Holy Spirit oftentimes uses a person in our life. And then along with that, he uses a scripture passage and brings those together. You think of your life in ways that those three have come together. You know, an experience, a person, and God's Word. And it, and it causes the Word to get written by the Holy Spirit in this indelible, deep way in your life to where that verse becomes a friend. You know, that passage becomes a friend in a, in a unique way among all the scriptures that you know and love. You know, my father's one model for me in that he has, for you that love the TMS Navigator verse packet, it's, it's the C verse packet. And there's 12 verses, and he, when in the watches of the night, when he doesn't sleep well, when he wakes up, and he goes through those 12 verses, God's peace, God's strength, God's comfort, just goes through them until God settles him down and he goes back to sleep. What is it for you? Well, for me, when that fellow pastor asked that question, I was going, oh yeah, that's easy for me. <laughs> it's easy for me. I just kind of launched out. You know, I don't know if it was, it was a rhetorical question or not, but I responded. I said, well, of course, I, I got my passage. You know, my passage is, it's the widow of Nain. And somebody looked at me and says, what? I said, no, it's the widow of Nain. That's my passage. And when I'm in need, that's where I go. When I think through the mission of the church, what we do together, that's one of those places I go. It portrays Jesus as our complete Savior. And He is immeasurably compassionate. And He is supremely capable conquering. He's a complete Savior. Luke 7, verse 11. Hear God's word. Soon afterward, he went 
to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, and this good, good word endures forever. May God bless it to you today. And so you recall where we are. We started a new section last week in the gospel, Luke 7, 1 through 8, 3. It's a new little section. A lot of neat stuff happens in this section. And so this portion of Luke, I like those commentators who say something like this. It focuses on Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity is questioned. And so the verse that makes that clear is John the Baptist in 719, where John goes, uh, are you the one who is to come or should we look for somebody else? His identity is questioned. And it makes sense because in the Sermon on the Plain, he presented himself as the king, the king of the kingdom, this upside down, totally different kingdom that he has inaugurated in this world. That's what this world needs. And so his identity is questioned. And therefore, because of that, along with that, the sort of faith he's worthy to receive is considered. And so we have approaches to faith and thoughts about faith in this section as well. So three points. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Second, Jesus is a conquering Savior. And third, Jesus calls you to trust in Him. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. So he starts off this wonderful, wonderful little vignette. Soon afterward, that is, soon after Jesus healed the centurion's servant with the word of his mouth, the authoritative word of God from a distance heals this centurion servant. So soon afterward, Jesus travels to this little town called Nain, only mentioned once in all of Scripture. Located in the middle of nowhere, it's 25 miles southwest of his home base in Capernaum, where he healed the centurion servant. It's the middle of the country, wide open fields, grasslands, nothing's really there. It's a little village. Today, it only has 200 residents. I mean, there's just nothing there. 
I mean, we know Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1, says Jesus is in an itinerant preaching ministry. So he's going to go to places, and yet we're looking at this and go, surely he didn't leave Capernaum aiming to go to Nain. You know, it wasn't really on his radar to go there, most likely. It's kind of an inconsequential place. We have, you know, maybe part of the reason I love this, there's these little 200-person places in our state, and we may think they're inconsequential, right? Jesus makes it here, and he's not walking alone. He's not by himself. He's accompanied by his disciples in a great crowd, that have walked 25 miles away from Capernaum. And it's early on in his ministry, he's he's faced some rejection. You know, we've, we've seen that. He's faced some opposition. But on the whole, things are going Jesus's way. He's on an upward trajectory. He's got the wind at his back. He's popular. He's what people talk about. He's the news, you know. In chapter 4, and then later, after this event, we're going to say the reports spread everywhere about him. I mean, he's on everyone's tongue. So, he's walking in the middle of nowhere with a great crowd of subsistence farmers and day laborers who are taking the day off work or days off work to be in his company to hear what he's going to say next to witness the next miracle he's going to perform. I mean, this is a big sacrifice. They're with him. So Jesus draws near to the gate of this little village. He's got this energetic, expectant, excited crowd with him. They're talking. They're enjoying their time. And all of a sudden, his energetic, expectant, excited crowd, as he enters the gates of this little village, comes face-to-face in this small road with a totally different kind of crowd. And it couldn't be more different. This crowd is, is sad and silent except for weeping and somber. It's real... It, the gravity of the event. And they're walking out of the town towards the cemetery, which will be found outside the city gates. And Luke slows, like if he's videoing this scene, he, he slows the video camera down and focuses on the details. Like he wants you to take in the details. There's this young man being carried out in this open coffin. And the young man is the son. But not just one son among many sons. He's the only son. And he's the only son not of two parents, but rather he's the son of his mother, because she's a widow. And it, it doesn't get worse than this. This is going down, downtown, down to, to rock bottom. This is the worst scenario. It's the, the thing you dread. Like if that happened, I don't know if I can get through it. This is it. This lady, it's happened to her. 
And Luke wants you to feel that. He's helping us enter into her suffering. And you may be here today and you too easily feel what she is feeling today. And this passage is is yours, like it's given to you. And she's an emotional wreck. She's devastated. Like, it's the kind of grief that hurts. Like, you know when you've been grieving that your heart hurts. Like, physically, she's, she's grieving uh, deeply. She's a wreck. And she's suffering socially. Like, she is alone. She has no family, no immediate family. I mean, thankfully, there's a considerable crowd with her. Like, her neighbors have come around her. They're showing her love. They know know something of how hard this is. They're with her. There's a considerable crowd, but they're going to go home. And she no longer has a man to represent her in society, which in that culture you had to have. I mean, you're just going to be kind of out. And... The Old Testament law enjoined everybody to pay attention to widows and orphans. Like, that was a really big deal in Old Testament law. But the reason it exists is because, naturally, they just kind of got overlooked. And there's nowhere she can go, no one she can be around and not feel lonely. Like, she's just lonely. She feels alone. And she suffers economically. And she has no one to work the fields or earn money. Like, how is she going to do it? I mean, I'm sure she's not working it out at this point, but the fear must be pressing in on her right now. What, it looks dark. It looks, how am I going to do this? Am I going to be destitute? It's creeping in. And she suffers spiritually. She's wondering, did, like, what did I do? Like, what did I do? I mean, you see, there was this common thought. We, I mean, we, we think this way too, don't we? There's this common thought that when tragedy happened, especially one like this, God must be judging you for some sin, some sin pattern. You did something to get this. And so in addition to everything else, she's got this shame and this guilt just kind of emerging and filling her mind and filling her heart. I mean, I mean, she's going through it. And so right here, the question that always comes to my mind is, what's Jesus going to do? Like, how's Jesus going to respond? I mean, then I ask immediately, like, what would you do? You know, how would you respond? You know, put yourself there. Like, Jesus didn't plan for this. It it didn't, like, work it out and say, I'm prop. In his human nature, he didn't plan. He got surprised in his human nature. And, And how we instinctively react to situations that take us off guard says so much about what's in our hearts, doesn't it? Because we can't, like, we can't mitigate our reaction. It just happens. And... So you encounter an inconvenience or a discomfort. 
And how do you react? It says a lot about what's swimming around, brewing in your heart. And so how does Jesus react? What instinctively, naturally, when he's caught off guard, when it's uncomfortable and inconvenient, like what flows out of his heart? And even more, like how does he respond when he's so popular? You know, young people, I mean, let's say everything's going your way. Everybody loves you. (laughs) And then you encounter something difficult or uncomfortable. So what do you do? Like, what's the easiest thing to do? You just kind of drift by. And he's popular. He's got big, important plans. That's what I think. You know, I have like this this thing (laughs) that I'm going for something. I'm going to miss stuff. And so is this plan so important that he's going to miss the inconvenience. Um, He's got more significant places and more significant people to deal with. He does. So will he care? Will he see? Will he sidestep? Will he sidestep? Will he... Or will will his mind be so taken up with this other crowd, the energetic, expectant, excited crowd, the mood they had, that he kind of feels like he needs to recover that really quickly, and so he just doesn't have the bandwidth, the emotional space. Is he too self-absorbed to really care? Now is that, is, is that our savior? Because if, if we're honest, I mean, I would do something like that. I would, I would probably respond some variation of that. And, and it just grieves me. But more than that, it just breaks my heart every time. I can't get enough of it that he's so unlike me. Like his, his crowd is eager and electric but it's face-to-face with this crowd that's just dreary and despondent. And right there, we have a window that opens up, this small window in this insignificant place just opens up into Jesus' deepest heart and what swims around and brews within the deepest recesses of Jesus' heart. For at that moment, there's only one person that matters to Jesus. There's one person, he's not thinking about the other crowd. His mind and his heart are absorbed in one person, and it's the one person who's most suffering right there. It's like everybody else fades into gray, and there's one person in color, like in living color right there, and that attracts his attention because grace goes there. He's only thinking of the grieving and lonely and poor and spiritually discouraged woman. Because the psalmist says, the Lord is near to whom? The brokenhearted. He saves whom? Those crushed in spirit. The psychiatrist Kurt Thompson said this wonderful line. He goes, every newborn comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. That's how we enter the world. And we wonder, is Jesus going to see her? And he sees her. And, that's, and really, it's, that's the only one he sees. And Luke makes it explicit. He says, and when the Lord saw her. 
And when the Lord saw her, what was his reaction? He had compassion on her. That's what leapt out of his heart. It wasn't discomfort. You know, it wasn't inconvenience. It wasn't my agenda got thwarted. It was that leapt out of his heart, his deepest heart. And as you've heard me say many times, this word compassion here is one of my favorite Bible words. It's the word, do we remember? Splank needs on my. Splank needs on my. It's a verb. Comes from a noun. And the noun is splanknon. So now it's clear. But splanknon means intestines. Just beautiful. The word for compassion comes from intestines. He's so moved with pain and pity for her that his stomach hurts. Like he feels it. His internal organs turn inside out. His, it's gut-wrenching to him. You, you felt that at times in your life when hard emotions come, it hurts. And he feels that. Your mediator feels that. Like that comes out of him instinctively before suffering. He feels it. He's moved by her pain so much that his stomach hurts. His internal organs turn inside out. It, her pain becomes his. Her sorrow, he absorbs it. And Luke uses this word two more times in his gospel. And he uses it in parables that are unique to him. And since they're unique to him, they are distinctive about some of his emphases. You know, he includes them, others don't. They're particular favorites of his. Maybe he has stories that he goes back to, this being one and these other two, that have taken hold of his heart. And one of them is when that Samaritan man is traveling along the road and he sees that Jewish man half dead, almost dead on the side of the road, alone, dying. And instead of looking at him and spitting at him, which that would have been the reasonable response, he is moved with compassion. His internal organs turn inside out. And the other distinctive Lucan parable is when the prodigal returns home to the father and the father's waiting at the bay window, looking, looking, aching for him to return home. The son approaches the house. He sees him at a distance. He's dirty, he's starved, he's ashamed. He knows it, but he's returning home. And the special word that Luke uses as he sees him, what leapt out of the father's heart was his internal organs turned inside out because he's so moved with compassion for his son who's, who shamed the family. You know? And so it's Luke's word, Luke's way of saying he's opening up a window into the heart of God. Like, how does God respond when you are suffering and the worst form of your suffering, your own sin? your own sin, that's such a burden to you. How does the Father view you? And we see it. His internal organs turn inside out. 
His compassion is instinctive. It naturally rises from his deepest heart. Then to reinforce all this, Jesus records two actions. And because compassion isn't just internal, it moves us to act. And so Jesus does some, you know, symbolic actions here. Um, And just notice that he's taking the initiative. Notice that. Nothing about this woman. She's just there. She's just grieving. You know, the centurion, the point of the centurion was he had this remarkable faith and he held him up as a model. Like this Gentile has a faith in me that none of y'all have. What kind of faith is Jesus worthy to receive? A faith like the centurion who just says, look, you say it and it's going to be done. But nothing is said about the widow's faith. It didn't elicit Jesus's response. He takes the initiative to her. It's just not the point. The point here is what kind of savior do we have? What's his identity? Well, he's a compassionate savior. What distinguishes her, her suffering, you know? It's just that she's hurting and he comes after her. So first, the first action is he says, don't weep. And it's kind of odd, really, but he's not censoring her. He's not telling her to quit being emotional. The psalmist says, every single tear that you have ever cried is in a bottle and God has it. Jesus weeps those tears over Lazarus's tomb. What he's saying here is it's a word of comfort and hope. I'm about to do something. I'm about to do something. Just hold on. It's a word of hope. Second, Jesus walks over and touches this open coffin. It's really just a plank. It's a board and the body's on the board. And why does he walk over Why does he have to do that? Like he already told us he can say things and not be close. Why does he touch it? Well, part of it is he wants the pallbearers to stop. And that's just logistically. But he could tell them. Why does he touch it? Well, the mother of her only son has embraced and kissed her son for the last time. She's bid her son farewell. And according to Old Testament law, she is now ceremonially unclean for seven days. According to Old Testament law, she should go outside the camp and be by herself for seven days. According to Old Testament law, she would have to wash certain days. And if she didn't do that, she'd be cut off. All that's in numbers. So Jesus comes up and touches the coffin to make himself ritually unclean with her in order to join himself to her suffering. He identifies with her. He makes himself one with her. He enters in fully. He's what she's going through, I'm going through. Commentator Daryl Bach says, cleanliness is next to godliness except when compassion is required. And Jesus enters into all the dirt and grime and sadness. In all this, we see the gospel. We see the gospel here. We see the incarnation of the Son of God here. It's a small picture of the cross of Christ here. Because God the Son in the heights of glory and majesty and privilege and power and happiness, everything going this way, the most popular man in heaven, he he descends lower and lower and lower. He keeps going down until he's at rock bottom bottom. He's made one with us, then a servant among us, then sacrifices himself on the cross, then descends into hell itself on our behalf. He keeps going down. He doesn't just touch our condition. He 
becomes our condition. It's not inconvenient or distasteful to him. He's moved with compassion. It's what instinctively drives him. Our sad condition makes his stomach hurt. It's a delight to him to show that compassion. And won't that move you? Won't that warm your heart, melt your heart today? If you're in, if you're in sin today, won't that melt your heart today? If you're suffering today, won't that melt your heart today? He cares. He sees. Uh, there was a speech at General Assembly. A lady named Darby Strickland with CCEF. She's a counselor, and she gave a speech about uh, domestic abuse and sexual abuse. And um, she said a church needs to be very vigilant, very vigilant. We need to be very vigilant and about victims women that might be victims. And she quotes Luke 4, the purpose statement of Luke that we've looked at. And then she says, since the vulnerable and oppressed are close to Jesus's heart, they must be close to ours. They must be. They drive our heart because they drive Jesus's heart. It says a whole lot about our mission before sin and suffering. That's my longest point. My next one's shorter, I promise. Jesus is a conquering savior. As, as heartwarming as his compassion is, like as, as gripping as it is, as much of it melts our heart, it really wouldn't be enough unless he could actually change the situation. Empathy is one thing, but somebody could enter in and revolutionize it is something else. So now we go and look at his strength and power. Jesus says to the dead man, and it'd be crazy, ludicrous, unless he could do something about it. He says, young man, I say to you, arise publicly before all these witnesses. And so amazingly, this young man arises and he sits up, which is a medical term, Dr. Luke, and he starts talking. And wouldn't you love to hear what first comes out of the mouth of the young man? And the next detail is just precious. Jesus gives him back to his mother. The mother. Mothers. He's sweet. Very kind. He has you in his heart. She's the focus. So I want to say three quick things about Jesus' conquering work here. First, we see the extent of the gospel. Jesus shows that the gospel reverses all aspects of the fall. All of it. It's not the spiritualistic cubbyhole of your life. Everything is transformed by the king of the kingdom. Uh, the mother is the focus. She is healed emotionally, right? From utter grief to elated joy. Um, Revelation 21, no more mourning, crying, and pain. He takes her sadness away. He heals her socially. She's not lonely. She has her boy with her. She's not scared about her economy for now she has a man that's going to work the fields and and she's healed spiritually like there's none of this guilt shame thing she knows she's accepted by God he's proven it publicly before a shadow of a doubt everything is reversed by the king and when Jesus deals with your sin at the cross the root cause of everything wrong in your life and in our world when he takes that sin sentence upon himself and he takes it away, he begins to undo the work of the devil throughout our world. 
and in your life. And one day in the new heavens and new earth, I mean, it's going to be incredible. Perfect people in a perfect world, restored emotionally, socially, economically, spiritually. But even now we, we get tastes of it, glimmers of it. You know this in your life as he enters in, he starts moving things around and helping you cut off sin and love Jesus and you start functioning better. It's a battle every day, but it's a great battle. And we come into the church and we start loving each other, not hating each other. And we start moving into this world in service and gospel witness. It says everything about our mission as a church. And other guys said these words at General Assembly on the domestic abuse report again. I just loved it. He goes, our job is to bring the eschatological vision as close as we can to earth. That's why we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus gives us a glimpse of glory. The way things will be one day is what we work towards now. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to mend it all. Second, we see ourselves here. Naturally, you and I are the dead man. We're not mostly dead. Okay, we're, we're dead. We're not like the centurion servant, almost dead. We are dead here. It's a sad state. It's hopeless, incapable to make ourselves acceptable to God. We are this young man, like spiritually speaking. You, we're this young man. We don't have a prayer. We're... We're hopeless. We have stony hearts. But you see, Jesus enters our reality, takes the initiative and grace with us, sovereign grace in your life. He looks at you, man, woman, boy, girl, arise, arise. And that's the point on the preaching of the gospel, reading the gospel, whoever ministered saving words to you where it registers, like the lights come on, you want it. And that wasn't natural. A stony heart just got ripped out of you and a fleshy heart just got given to you. It's, um, if we think this is a big miracle, God Calling you into spiritual life is a much grander miracle. You are a group of miracles here today. That God said, arise. And third, we see Jesus' redeeming work. We'll just think about it. Jesus, the one and only beloved Son of the Father, commands a dead only Son to arise. And you just can't read it and not say, Jesus is anticipating what's about to happen. He's the only beloved son of the Father who takes our death penalty on himself, crucified, dead, buried, but having paid the death penalty, the prison house of death has to cave in and he has to resurrect. And so he resurrects from the grave. He arises. Notice a great prophet has arisen among us. They speak truer than they realize. He will be raised into glory. And therefore, it's very important here that Luke calls him Lord when he narrates the story. This is the first time he does it. And from then on, he'll keep doing it. And what he's saying is, and it, he calls him Lord in the passage where Jesus raises a dead man and he's 
preparing us for acts when Jesus will be declared the Son of God with power, having risen from the dead, God himself who holds the keys of death and Hades. We have gospel work right here, the atonement of Christ. So he's immeasurably compassionate. He's supremely conquering. Do you believe in him today? Because Jesus calls you to respond in faith. Calls you to respond because the crowds can't help it. They look and see what's going on and, and it says fear seizes them and they glorify God. There's this deep reverence and abounding praise and they say a great prophet has arisen among us like Elisha and Elijah who are the only other ones that raised dead people and that God has visited his people like God visited his enslaved people in Egypt through Moses and redeemed them from bondage. It ends up becoming a word for Messiah. Messiah is here. He's doing the work. And we're believing in him. And we're going to have to evaluate their faith a little bit more. But right now, the, the reaction is faith in Jesus and his redeeming work. And not only faith, then they go tell everybody else. So what kind of faith does Jesus deserve? He, he deserves this glorifying God, fear, trust, reverence, tell everybody type of faith. Because He's so compassionate. He's so conquering. He's a complete savior. He's the one our world desperately needs. And every day, and every day, we need this sweet man to take charge of our lives more and more. May it be so for each of you today. Amen. Let's stand.